This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. We should probably give a little disclaimer here that this whole story sounds like complete BS. A lot of the facts of this case have been muddled over the years and a lot of embellishment and lore added over time. Of course, in the future, we're going to stick with cases that have more solid facts available, but we couldn't not talk about this case. This was just is absolutely mesmerizing. There are some police reports and reputable articles about this case. Yeah, there's a lot of information out there, but for the most part, everybody involved in this case was a minor or a victim or a minor and a victim. Right. So a lot of the names have been changed or redacted, which doesn't help being able to completely fact check certain details of the story. So we're going to tell you the story that we've researched and read the most. And if we're wrong, I'm sure you'll tell us about it on Instagram. You can come and follow us on our Instagram from crime to crime. Also, our email address is from crime to crime podcast at gmail.com. So on this episode of From Crime to Crime, we're going to be talking about Daniel LaPlante. Daniel was born in Massachusetts in May of 1970. Not a lot is known about his childhood, except that it wasn't awesome. It's been reported that he was mentally, physically, and sexually abused by not only his father, but also his stepfather. Uh, He was known as the weird kid at school, the creepy kid. He's been described as smelly and unkept. His creep factor led him to be sent to the school psychiatrist, and it's been reported that the school psychiatrist sexually abused him as well. So this isn't really starting out great for this kid. No, not at all. That's definitely the worst case scenario. (laughs) To say the least. Yeah. Having problems at home and then getting sent to the school psychologist or psychiatrist who's also abusing you, really not not ideal. No, of course. Definitely didn't set him up to become a winner. This story really begins when Daniel was about 16 in Townsend, Massachusetts, which is about an hour from Boston. It's near the New Hampshire border. Daniel started acting out a little bit and getting into things like burglarizing homes, but he was so creepy and weird that he couldn't even be normal about burglarizing homes. He had to be creepy, like, just go in, steal people's shit, and leave. Yeah, I agree. And the the way that he did it is really what makes it so odd is he'd walk in and he'd kind of move some things around, pretend like he had been there or make it seem like somebody had been there. But who are they sure that they moved things around? I don't know. <laughs> and then he'd take off again. So I've even heard stories that he wouldn't even steal anything. He would leave stuff behind so that people had were like, well, what is this tchotchke that I didn't leave here? Like, right. What? How crazy is that? That he would steal things from other people's houses just to put them in other people's. It's not that he wanted it. He just wanted yeah. to screw with other people. Ugh. Then sometime in late 1986, Daniel got a phone number. There's a lot of ways he could have gotten this phone number. Some suspect that he got it when he broke into the house and saw a picture of the family. And a lot of other people believe that he may have known somebody who knew the family and got the phone number. But also it was 1986. So... Maybe he just looked it up in the phone book. We might not ever know. I imagine there wasn't a lot going on in 1986, so dialing numbers for fun was probably the way kids had fun then. Maybe. But, like, what are the chances that you're going to get somebody around the same age as you and in your hometown? Like, I mean, I guess an area code. Yeah, not likely. Maybe he was just calling to mess with people and happened to get somebody his age. Maybe. It's really unknown, and we might not ever know. 
But he started calling this number, and back then, people just, like, answered their phone all willy-nilly, even if they didn't know who was calling. Man, we don't answer our door, not even, much less our phone, if we don't know who's there. I don't answer anything. <laughs> I hear my doorbell, and I'm like, ooh, turn off all the lights? No way. Get down. And then it's always the UPS guy, so it's like, I don't know, I didn't just answer it. <laughs> it's always somebody you invited, like the Amazon deliverer. But yeah, exactly. You always get real weird. Mm-hmm. So... The number that he ended up calling belonged to the Andrews family. Brian, the dad, Annie, who was 15, and Julie, who was 8. And their mom had recently passed away from cancer. So they were all really going through a really rough stage. And Daniel called probably at a good time. You know, I don't, he didn't know that her mom, that their mom had passed. But he really just kind of happened to be at the right place at the right time. And was able to start up a conversation and somewhat of a relationship with Annie, who was the closest one to his age, and he lied to her. He told her he was tall and blonde and athletic and handsome, which couldn't be farther from the truth. She finally agreed to go on a date with him after talking to him on the phone for a while, and when he showed up, boy, was she surprised. Not only was he not what he described that he was, he was Daniel LaPlante. And you can see pictures of what we're talking about on our Instagram at From Crime to Crime. She realized right then and there that he had catfished the shit out of her. Yeah, I would say. She seems like she's pretty sweet because she still went out with him, which I don't think she should have done, but she still went out with him anyway. Yeah, well, that obviously didn't work out too well for her because the date went about as terrible as any first date you can imagine. Besides him smelling and looking like a troll, (laughs) he was super creepy about the death of her mom. He was asking way too many questions. Yeah. He was asking like if, you know, how she died and the last moments of her life and what it was like when she, you know, took her last breath and and things like that. And I wouldn't say those things to my best friend, let alone somebody on a first date. Like, that's insane to talk about. Like, whoa, we're not doing that, creep. Get out of here. It would really be a, a hard thing to bring up to anybody at any point in any relationship you had with anybody like anybody hey, how did arguably the most important person in your life die what was their like that was it's a really uncomfortable uncomfortable situation that they're in Ugh, it's creepy so needless to say she turned him down for a second date she was like uh-uh no way so daniel took this news pretty bad instead of doing like normal things people do when they get turned down like move the hell on or write an entire album yeah like writing an album he went a different route like a real different route full 180 yeah full 180 turnaround so brian andrews was a bus driver and a single father so the girls were home alone quite a lot at this time and they're young and they're grieving the loss of their mom so they decided to perform a seance this like to talk to their mom like with a ouija board and all that Jazz. This is so 1986. This is, is. so, really? so 86 movie like written all over yeah. it. It's definitely not a good plan. That's for sure. No, definitely not a good plan, especially to do Home Alone. Like, what are you guys thinking? Well, I don't know, but it, I've never seen that work out ever. So shortly after they did their basement horror movie seance, they started to hear tapping and knocking sounds on the walls, of course. Naturally, like you do yeah. after a seance. Yep. So at first they thought it was their mom. And they were excited, which is a little weird, but I understand. Thinking that you contacted the spirit of your dead mom, especially being 15, they're grieving. They're going through a really hard time. 15 and 8, that's a terrible time to lose 
a parent, especially your mom. When the knocking and the tapping went on for weeks, only when their dad wasn't home, the girls started to be convinced their house was haunted, that they summoned a demon or something during their seance. And if I remember correctly, it started happening at night and waking them up. Yeah, once it started happening and started keeping them up at night, they realized, like, dude, our mom is never going to do this. Like, she's not going to mess with us. Yeah. Like, if it was their mom, she wouldn't be screwing with them. Right, not trying to scare them. She'd be trying to, you know, have them understand that she was there and she was safe. Yeah, she would be communicating with them, but not awkwardly. (laughs) So the girls began to think that the house was haunted, and it really started to drive them crazy. One night, the girls heard knocking in the basement, so they just, like, grabbed kitchen knives and soldiered their ass down to the basement, like, what's up, Chuck? I'm like, what? Yeah, I wouldn't be doing that. I'm a grown-ass man, and I would not be doing that. No. I own guns. And I'd be like, no, let somebody else check that basement out later. Yeah, I'll let somebody who gets paid to do that look at that. Yeah, no way. So that's where they found writing on their walls in blood, of course, because they went down to the basement when they heard tapping. Sure. So... Obviously, you're going to find blood on the walls. Naturally. That's the place to go to find the blood, sure. It said something to the effect of, come upstairs and find me. Oh, man. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Nope. Now I'm not going back upstairs. Yeah, no First, I wasn't going to go downstairs. Now I'm not coming back up. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, where are these girls going to go? Yeah. I hope there's like an outside door. The story's not very clear on where they went, but it does say that they ran to a neighbor's house. So I'm assuming, obviously, they made it past whoever they were running from. So the girls ran to a neighbor's house screaming and crying, and she called their dad, who was livid because he was at work and thought they just wanted attention and thought they were grieving and being annoying teenage girls and thinking their house was haunted. So he was pissed. That was, from what I've read, the last straw that made him send them to grief counseling because he thought they were losing their marbles because their mom died. I've read that. And fair enough. I mean, I think that's a... (laughs) If you hadn't done it yet, that's probably a good time to think, yeah, maybe they need some a little bit of help. Yeah. No, I think that's like a good dad thing to do. So a few weeks later, the girls found another message written in blood in Annie's bedroom. Nope. That said, I'm back. Don't like that. So. Nope. Yeah, I would have just burned the house down and said, forget about this. I'm sure your dad has insurance, guys. Just light a match. Get out of there. They didn't burn it down, unfortunately. They freaked out and ran to the neighbor's house again. The dad came home, and at first he was pissed, but then he went into the house, and he realized that they weren't making this up. The house was, like, ransacked, and things were moved around, and he knew that there was no way the girls would have done that. Like, he just knew things were different. That would be a little over the top to try to, you know, spook your dad or convince him of something. Right. So he went upstairs to Annie's room, and this is where the details get strange and twisted, and it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure deal from here on out. So if you don't like our version, there's like 467 other versions to pick from on the internet, so we're going to go with this one. So in Annie's room, he found another note on the wall written in blood that just said, Marry me, and obviously the girls didn't write on their walls in blood, and he knew that. Oh my gosh. Walking upstairs and seeing that, I, I would... Just absolutely lose my mind. But it, like you said, it does get worse. So Brian then turns around and he catches a glimpse of probably the worst case scenario. In his daughter's closet, he finds Daniel LaPlante wearing a blonde wig, wearing makeup in his dead wife's wedding gown. Uh, and, uh. and he's holding a hatchet. No, 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 no. Nope. 
So I heard he wasn't wearing makeup, though. That's the issue you're going to focus on in all of that? That's probably the least important thing of this entire nightmare, that if he was or wasn't wearing <laughs> yeah, makeup. I yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I have bigger yeah. right here. <laughs> yeah. So obviously Daniel's afraid, too. He sees Brian, and a struggle ensues. Brian wasn't seriously injured, and Daniel Plant did get away, and Brian couldn't find him anywhere. The police even came, they looked around, and they couldn't find him. Well, how hard could it be? You have a teenage boy in a blonde wig and a wedding dress with a hatchet running down the street. Like, you can't find him? Where's he? Where'd he go? I would definitely think that he would stand out in a crowd. Absolutely. But the police couldn't locate him. When the police couldn't locate him, they started looking around the Andrews family home to see where Danny could have broken in. And during their search, they found a crawl space. And when they opened it, behind some clothing and bedding, the police officer found Daniel LaPlante in the walls of the Andrews family home home oh gross where gross (laughs) absolutely it's gross could you imagine finding this kid in your walls no 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 no. it gets worse and worse and not only that it'd been obvious that he'd been there for several months Mm -hmm. um (laughs) as they pulled things out they were able to go through the crawl space and they found peepholes that that daniel laplante had drilled out so he could keep an eye on the girls they found what peepholes what like he was moving around the house, watching them. Probably. Oh no! no I no, imagine no. Nope, the way no, I no, envision no. this is he was on his hands and knees, army crawling through this little crawl space, and just keeping an eye on, on probably Annie, most likely at any point that he nope. wanted. Nope. I didn't read that part, and I wish I didn't hear that part. That's new. <laughs> nope. That's creepy. Well, what about where did Daniel Laplante's family think that he was at this point? I mean, obviously his his home life isn't fantastic, but. They're, they keep an eye on him well enough to know where he is so they can abuse him in one way or another. Yeah. So. Well, I wonder if he was coming I, and going. Like, I wonder if he wasn't in the walls for two months. Like, I wonder if he was leaving and then sneaking back in and out. Like, I, because it had to have been freezing in Massachusetts in January. I think, like, I don't think you could live in the wall. I mean, wouldn't it be freezing in the walls of a home? Like, that's. Yeah, I think it would be. I do. And, and you know, there's no, it doesn't say, but two months of him not going to school, somebody, somebody would be looking for him. Yeah. He was probably so going I, I in think, and out to just be a creep when he wanted to be. Well, and if he knew too that, you know, the girl's dad was a bus driver at night, he wouldn't need to be in the walls all the time. He could come and go as he pleased. Yeah, that's, but, ugh. but thankfully he was arrested and he ended up spending 10 months in a juvenile facility. He was out on bail in October of 1987 when his mother posted it. Which I think is a really interesting thing, too, that his mom is involved because we really don't hear much about her in most parts of these stories until right now. So she was around. She was a part of his life. She just obviously wasn't a great part. Ten months is not nearly enough time. I don't care how old you are. If you're breaking yeah. into people's houses and living in the walls and spying on them, ten months is not enough time. No, it's not. Not anywhere close to enough time. That is at least a 35-year sentence <laughs> because that is some seriously disturbing behavior. Like, hello, has anybody broken into the walls of some, like, broken into somebody's house and lived in the walls for two months and it doesn't lead to anything awful? Has that ever happened where it doesn't lead to a nightmare? No, but he's also in a juvenile detention center. In 1987, they didn't exactly have mental health help. They don't really have it now. So where else was he going to go? He was only going to get arrested. Jail. Well, that's the only place he could go. That's where he was. He was in a juvenile facility. That's, that is, that's juvenile. Yeah, but why'd they let him out? Well, because his mother posted bail. Why did he have bail? Uh, apparently the judge thought that, that he should be uh, able to rehab and go back into society within 10 months. This is why I'm a pro advocate for no fucking bail. 
When people do crazy shit like this, lock them up, throw away the key. I think so too. I mean, I think there's some people who don't deserve bail. Something like this where you found him in the walls. That should be enough to keep him there. That's what I'm saying. This is out of control. Absolutely. But that's, and that's it though. There's no, hey, you know, maybe it's mistaken identity. You found the dude in the walls with his stuff. Like, you know, it was him. So you're right. Why is he out? It was LaPlante in the basement with the hatchet. It's not a game of Clue. Absolutely. But that's where the worst part comes in. So this is where the story takes a hard left from kind of funny, lore, creepy, gross to this should have never happened. Because the creepy, you know, things that happened in the first part of this story should have made it to where this second part never happened. So before we go any farther in the story, this is where we need to give a warning Because the next part of this story includes some pretty awful and violent things that happen to a family. And that family includes very small children. So I just want you to be warned that the next few minutes are not going to be very easy to listen to. Now we meet Andrew and Priscilla Gustafson. Andrew's an attorney and Priscilla is a nursery school teacher. And they have two kids, Abigail, who's seven, and William, who's five. And Priscilla is pregnant with their third child. On December 1st, 1987, Andrew had some sort of work accomplishment that he wanted to celebrate, and he called home to see if Priscilla could get a babysitter for their two small kids, but nobody answered the phone. So when Andrew got home, he was a little... uh, already. He had a bad feeling, and the house was really quiet. So he went upstairs, and he found his pregnant wife, Priscilla Gustafson, face down, dead in their bed. The police later determined that she was raped, beaten, and shot twice. Mm. Oh, my gosh. That's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Gets worse. And, well, this was done, seems like, maybe, like, in the middle of the day, too, which, you know, for whatever reason, makes it a little bit more disturbing to think that it was maybe done in broad daylight. Yeah. You know, Andrew called home because he was going to celebrate something. And, yeah, I don't know, it's just the creep factor on it in the middle of the day, for whatever reason, just makes it go up in my my book. Yeah. So, after a search of their home... Their five-year-old son, William, was found drowned in the upstairs bathroom, and their seven-year-old daughter, Abigail, was found beaten and drowned in the downstairs bathroom. Mm. Oh, my gosh. What a sight to come home to as a father who, I mean, there's literally nothing you could come home to that would be worse than that. No, of course not. Uh, That's, yeah, it's... It's heartbreaking. It's really the worst-case scenario. Somebody literally wiped this man's entire life, like, just totally took everything away from him in one day. How do you go on? I couldn't imagine. So the police obviously come and they start to do an investigation and their investigation led them through the woods behind the Gustafson family home. It's been reported that they found a shirt and some gloves that were still wet, possibly from the drownings. Oh, that would make sense. So they keep walking and boom, on the other side of the woods, Danny LaPlante's house. What? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, Daniel LaPlante didn't even try to, like, make it not seem like it was him. He didn't care. Yeah, but think about it. Why would he care? Everything else he's done in his life, he's gotten away with. I mean, look what he did to Annie and her sister for months. And he served 10 months in a juvenile facility, and then they let him out. So yeah, who else would be capable <laughs> of murdering a pregnant woman and her two small children in the middle of the day, except this jerk who was living in somebody else's walls for a while, and yeah. we just let out of prison? Like... Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I can't even... Well, who are our suspects? Well, there is that kid we just let out from Ugh. living in the people's walls. Oh, yeah. Let's check there first. Yeah. 
Good, good plan. Good plan, because, yeah, obviously. But they went to find him, and he was gone. He literally murdered a whole family in his backyard. Right. He knew he was going to get caught. He knew he fucked up. He was like, bye. I mean, what else are you going to do? You're on, you're on, you're out on bail. You've just killed somebody who's right around the corner from you. You realize, oh yeah, I didn't do this very well. Probably the best thing he could have done for himself at that point was get the hell out of Dodge and, you know, try not to get caught. Yeah. But the worst thing that he could have done was the way that he did it. Right. So he broke into another person's home and forced her at gunpoint to drive him out of town. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. So they get in the van and they start driving. And when they pulled up to a stop sign, she fucking ninja her ass right out of the van. I'm like, hell yeah, I would have done that too. What else are you going to do? I mean, good for her for even doing that. There would be so many people, probably me included, who'd be so scared. Like, I don't, I'm not going to jump out. Not to mention, this kid is 16 years old. He doesn't have his license yet. So <laughs> no wonder he had someone else driving. Oh, I didn't think of that. That's probably why. He yeah, he couldn't drive. He didn't know how. So... <laughs> Yeah, because he could have just stole the van. Yeah, but he didn't know how. And, well, and clearly he cares about rules and laws, so he didn't want to break the law of not having driving without a license, too. Yeah, of course. So he didn't want to. So he didn't want to get involved with that. But I mean, this kid, I, I never th- even thought this of that. guy killed a family and then couldn't get away fast enough, so had to ask somebody to drive him elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, what a loon. From most of the reports that I've read, it said that he was on the run for about 48 hours before the police finally caught up with him. And I heard that he was in some sort of... Dumpster. Yeah, he was like in a hiding place of some kind, like a dumpster or something. Right. And they acted like they left. They psyched him. They faked him out. They acted like they left the scene. They were like, oh, all clear over here. (laughs) And then... (laughs) Like, pounded their boots on the pavement. Like, we're, we're walking away, guys. Was Mickey Mouse running this investigation? I have no idea. How do you... You're dealing with somebody who, like Daniel Plant, who has the mind of almost a child in some aspects, because he is. And in other aspects, he's kind of a terrifying genius. But he makes such some simple mistakes that he, he's dead in the water. He doesn't give himself a chance. I have read that, too, that his IQ is almost genius. Oh, how amazing is that? IQ of almost genius. Yeah. And you're out here jumping into dumpsters thinking that cops walked away and now it's a good time for to jump out. Yeah. But they caught him. So good on them. Not only did they catch him in the most cartoonish way of just pretending to walk away from the dumpster, when they pulled him out, they found Abigail's hair attached to his foot. So again, oh, yeah. nail in the coffin. They found him in the crawl space. They found him in the dumpster and he was guilty both times and. He was charged and sentenced to three life sentences. There are a few conspiracy theories that say that it could have been his brother or his stepfather that did the murders. But I've also seen reports about the hair of Abigail's found on his sock and that his brother's alibi checked out and that his stepfather was never a suspect. So it was more than likely Daniel LaPlante. I bet this is Daniel saying too, like, this wasn't me. This was my dad or my, my stepdad or my brother. Right. And he definitely plays into it. That sounds right. He definitely plays into the lore and all the weird, you know, creepy mystery part of this. Because since he's been in prison, he sued the state of Massachusetts for infringing on his rights. He tries to get like, I don't know, cakes and pies because he's a Wiccan or something. Oh, he's a... Or a Satanist. He's a Satanist. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to get all sorts of things. And they have to have cake. I don't, I'm not I'm not real familiar with Satanism yeah. as a whole. Not real up to date on what Lucifer eats for dessert, but... 
Yeah, you don't get cake. How about that? You killed three people, you don't get cake. Well, from what I've read, he's won a couple of these lawsuits against the state of Massachusetts for infringing on his rights. But also what I've heard is that all the money that he's won has all gone to his attorney. So it's not like he gets it. And what's he going to do with it anyway? He has three life sentences. You know, you can only buy so many packs of Top Ramen. He's buying cake, Grant, for his witchcraft <laughs> stuff. Satanism. Oh, Satan. Whatever. I, I know there's a difference. Don't I know that. People are going to get all uppity about that. Oh, if you get all uppity, please visit our our Instagram at From Crime to Crime. We'd love to hear you get uppity with us. If you want to send us your thesis about the difference between Wiccan and witchcraft and Satanism, please from Crime to Crime Podcast at gmail dot com. Anyway, he was up for parole for the first time in two thousand seventeen because of a Supreme Court ruling that says that juveniles shouldn't get life without parole sentences, which uh, this one probably should have. Yeah. This one's pretty, pretty out there. You know, I think the world is better with with Daniel LaPlante, where people know where he's at. Especially because, like you said, he's only fifty one years old. Exactly, and I've also read too that the psychologists who are evaluating him say that he is not rehabilitated. However, he did apologize in two thousand and seventeen for what he did and said, "From the depths of my souls and the deepest part of the my being, he has no soul." I I'm, I tend to believe you on that. Yeah, no, he has no soul. Andrew Gustafson passed away from cancer a few years ago, and his second wife testified at the parole hearing for him, which was awful to listen to. Yeah, Andrew Gustafson died in 2014, and on his deathbed, he even said he deserves to rot in there. So there was no love lost. There was no forgiveness from Andrew to Daniel, and rightfully so. He robbed him of his entire family. Yeah, of course. Daniel was denied parole in 2017 and again in 2019. Which makes me a little nervous that he was up for parole so quickly. Does that mean he's going to be up for parole every two years? I guess it depends on what the this new court hearing, new court Supreme Court ruling says. Is that just a Massachusetts thing, though, or is it a no? Supreme... I, I believe that's no. The Supreme Court thing is federally you can't oh, okay you can't give a life without parole sentence to a juvenile. So he oh, okay. mandatorily has to have parole because he can't get a life without parole sentence. Right. Because okay. they think it's cruel and unusual. Hey, that's that's your buddies. Because oh, I'm so against the death penalty. So I I know that'll be fun on cases that we talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, we, I mean, I really am. I think <laughs> us going back and forth will be rather entertaining for people. As of this episode today, Daniel Laplante is still within police custody, and hopefully that is where he stays. Because I don't think that he could be rehabilitated enough to join society in a positive way. I don't necessarily think that. Whether he could be rehabilitated or not, I don't think he deserves to be. He took the lives of three people that don't ever get to be in society again, so why should he? Absolutely. Whether he's rehabilitated or not. In fact, I hope he's rehabilitated, and I hope he really is sorry, because then he's suffering even more. It's true. He, he took the lives of three people, and he should spend the rest of his days in jail. There should be... Yeah. There should be no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Yeah, just throw away the key. So as of this episode, Daniel Plant is locked away safely in police custody, and hopefully that's where he will stay for the rest of his life. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at From Crime to Crime. And if you have any tips or suggestions for future cases, make sure you send us an email at fromcrimetocrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Thanks for the honor. honor.